What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. In 2003, Nike signed 13-year-old Freddie Adu to a seven-figure contract. But Freddie didn't live up to the hype. He has turned down every single documentary project looking closely at the details of his career. Until now. People are going to look at everything you did because of the hype surrounding your arrival and what they think you can be. I'm Grant Wall, and this is American Prodigy, Freddie Adu, from Blue Wire Podcasts. It's Brenda here, and I am joined by Jessica and Lindsay. Welcome to Burn It All Down. It's the feminist podcast you need. On this week's show, we're going to be talking about an important story that came out of Louisiana State University, where the administrators in the sports program and beyond thwarted Title IX. It is definitely true that there's a different way we talk about this, but I'm not sure that that is necessarily changing the way people are acting around this and that's but before I that i just want to ask really quickly it's thanksgiving week happy thanksgiving what non-obvious petty shit are you thankful for meaning don't give me friends and family don't give me co-hosts give me something <laughs> that makes you happy that is not so actually important jess yeah so uh number one is oreos I've been eating my fair share of Oreos during quarantine. And then two, this week I put on a pair of jeans for the first time and I don't even know how long. And it just made me so thankful for all of my elastic waistband pants that I have (laughs) normally wear. I thought you were going the other direction. Like you're going to be like, oh, it's so good to put on pants. It was not. Don't do it. <laughs> it's never good to ba- button pants. Buttoning pants is never good. No. Nope. Just, uh-uh. You heard it here. Stay in your elastic waistband clothing. What about you, Linz? So I think I've told listeners that, uh, you know, I've been mainly vegetarian since May. And so that makes, you know, things like drive throughs a little difficult because there's not that much. So what I'm thankful for while I'm going back and forth between D.C. and North Carolina and running all around Greensboro are Bojangles egg biscuits because I can get them any time of the day because they, you know, do biscuits any time of the day. If you don't know what, what Bojangles is, I'm sorry that you lived such a horrible life. Um <laughs> But I just love that it's like this deliciousness that doesn't stop at 1030 and that I can get on my way. And also online shopping and also makeup. Love all of these things. Nice. Nice. And mine is toaster strudel. I had no idea that they continued to make toaster strudels. But I remember I was a kid. And you know when you're like, well, if anybody like grew up kind of working class and were told that even working class stuff was too expensive. I I remember my grandparents being like, that is like the Cadillac of Pop-Tarts. You cannot just go out there and get yourself a toaster strudel, right? And so I like coveted these things. And I don't know why I thought of it the other day. And I was like, I should go out and buy all the things that my middle class ascension can provide like clearly Canadian seltzer water. And so I bought toaster strudels and I think they're amazing. And I'm so grateful that that trash gets made still because- Is that the um, one where you put your own icing on? Yes, yes. And you could like try to make your name or you could like spread it with a knife. There's so much artistic creativity. I mean, you're a baker. You must really feel the toaster strudels. (laughs) I love toaster strudel. Especially strawberry, especially strawberry. All right, well, happy Thanksgiving to everybody out there. Okay, so I would like to issue a trigger warning for sexual and dating violence for this next topic. And a reminder that there are timestamps so you can always forward and skip what you need. Last week, USA Today ran a series of stories 
sort of spearheaded by a main one, which is titled LSU Mishandled Sexual Misconduct Complaints Against Students, Including Top Athletes. And that was by Kenny Jacoby, Nancy Armour, and our own Jessica Luther. So I'm really excited and I feel really privileged that we have her on the show already. The articles begin by looking into two separate rape allegations against running back Darius Geis, who played at LSU from 2015 to 2017. These allegations came from other student athletes. And as the report says, quote, at each step of the way, LSU officials either doubted the women's stories, didn't investigate, or didn't call the police, allowing Geis to continue his football career. End of quote. The story has prompted the governor's ire and student and faculty protests. And I wanted to talk with Jessica both about the process of the piece, the piece itself, and about what what we can think that some investigative report like this should prompt in terms of university responses. So Jessica, I wanted to ask what your takeaways from the piece was in terms of, was the idea that you were going to put forth something that was particularly new. You were going to reiterate what's going on in terms of campus rape culture all the time and try to shed some extra light on it. I mean, how different is LSU from any other program out there? Or are they? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I'll say it feels really familiar. (laughs) I mean, I've been doing this work for the last seven years, and there's a lot of echoing that's happening here. One thing that has been different is that the analogy I keep using, it's like um, when you use a pressure cooker and then you have to release the steam afterwards and it's like super intense and like almost scary. That's what it's been like since we reported. The response has been incredible in a way that I haven't really experienced before. So we definitely were hitting on something that lots of people felt like they understood but didn't have an outlet for like no one had told the story before and it needed to be told. So I, I, I think one of the big takeaways for us, and this was really important to us, was to make sure that we said that this was a university wide problem. It's definitely about football and athletics in particular. We found that there were at least nine football players who were reported for sexual misconduct and dating violence since coach Ed Orgeron took over the team just four years ago. And one particularly terrible case around wide receiver Drake Davis, who continually uh, beat his girlfriend, who was also a tennis player. Um, let's like let's really note over and over again how many athletes were harmed here when we think about how the school responded. But in the Drake Davis case, seven seven LSU officials knew about this, and some really sat on it before anything actually happened. And so that included both of the tennis coaches, uh, Mike and Julia Sell, they're a married couple, assistant football coach Mickey Joseph, and deputy athletic director Verge Osbury, right? So very top people. They've all denied all of this. And so it's interesting in that one thing LSU has said is they're going to, they've hired this outside law firm, Hush Blackwell, to come in and look at their policies and their procedures around Title IX and, the, and how they handle reports of sexual and dating violence. But like one of the things that these women have said to us is that like the policies were there, just no one was doing anything with them. And that's not uncommon necessarily. But that was an interesting part of this because it's often like, let's just fix the procedure. And then everything will be better. And this really does feel like a cultural issue and a difference to these reports. And again, university wide. So the article is definitely about football. But we made sure there's a whole story about a fraternity member who's been reported. And we've heard stories from across campus since we published this. So a huge problem there. Does it feel any different than the culture at Baylor, Mm. for example? Baylor is such a specific case because it's Baptist. And so there's a whole different flavor there. So in this sense, like, how how to put it? One thing when with this is I actually personally wondered if people would care because it was LSU and we have this idea that D1 football schools like LSU, they won the national championship last year that like they are just like this. And this is kind of normal. Baylor was different. I mean, we kind of, I mean, I didn't expect that story to blow up in the way that it did, but there's this idea of like this Baptist culture built around the church. There's like an idea that they, care about their community. And so I don't know, I just, um, yeah, is it different? 
I don't know. It's so similar, right? Like it, it's hard to know. I think that the way the campuses operate are, are very different and the communities that they bring in. But I, I mean, I'll say I was genuinely surprised that people cared this much about the story. Another question I wanted to ask you is sort of connected to that is at the same time, there was this story about Colorado State. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. So this week, uh, the Coloradan I think is how you say it. I'm sorry if I got that wrong, but it's the newspaper, uh, I guess, out of Fort Collins, which is where Colorado State is. It's also a USA Today paper, so I saw it on the USA Today site. But yeah, they had athletes come forward really recently. And so this week, there was a huge report about it. And it's very similar stuff, I'll say. It's like administrators repeatedly failing to notify the university's Title IX compliance office within 24 hours after a reported incident, that they delayed the investigations by doing multiple interviews over and over again and attempting to persuade people not to file stuff in order to make it go away and that there's just a mistrust with it around that entire process at this point. And it's not unlike LSU, but it's not on fire in the same way that the LSU story was. And I think that part of this work will never stop being strange to me, like when this stuff hits and when it doesn't and what we care about and what we don't. One thing that really got me about this um, incredible work that you all did, Jess, is we've heard so much about in the past three years about this Me Too era, right? And it reminds me about how in the sports world, it was like, well, Ray Rice is going to change everything, right? And it certainly made the conversation louder, Certainly. Yeah. Um, And then we had the Me Too movement a few years ago. And when that happened, I was in the middle of reporting on Derrick Rose and the Nassar case and all of these big cases for Think Progress. And I think maybe a part of me thought, well, maybe this stuff was happening before Me Too and maybe there will be some change. Um, Maybe all you heard was there we were having the societal reckoning right and that, that was gonna mm-hmm. yeah it was gonna fix some things right awareness is bigger than it was when ray rice first happened when you were first reporting on baylor but then we get these pieces the what's happening in colorado state what's happening at lsu and it feels like we're back at square one sometimes it just feels like we're having the same battles over and over again. And if the Overton window is moving, it's in centimeters, you know, it's just like, we're just like not pressing forward. And so I guess from your perspective, I haven't done any of this reporting in a couple of years. Did you notice any change in sources and how they were able to come forward in, um, you know, in any of your conversations since kind of the, greater Me Too movement at large? That's such a great question, because one thing that I definitely noticed this week is that a lot of people were saying, well, I thought stuff was better since Baylor, which, of course, you know, I paid a lot of attention to how people talk about Baylor. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is wild that everyone just assumed that everything was better now, right? (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah, this is interesting. So Nancy and Kenny published a piece about Darius Geis back in August, which they published a few weeks after Geis was kicked off the Washington NFL team for domestic violence, right? And then they had this report about the two reported rapes against Geis. And then that caused some disclosure, right? So people contacting them with more stories. And I had also contacted them to just say they had done a really good job on that piece. And I've known Kenny and Nancy for a long time. And so they brought me on to do this with them. And so there was a lot of work of just, we contacted a lot of student athletes at LSU. And there was actually just a lot of silence. It was kind of fascinating how silent it was. I can't say why that is, because you can't ever explain the thing you don't talk to people about. But you do wonder if there's kind of a clampdown on how these things are talked about, if there was any kind of pressure involved there, which maybe that's a result of Baylor as well, right? That's the other side of it. So there's an idea that things are getting better, but maybe departments are getting less likely to talk, which one thing that was super interesting about LSU, and we definitely wrote about this multiple times, is how hard it was to access anything. USA Today is alongside one of the victims is suing LSU right now for documents that they've asked for. It took months to get stuff. Things were weirdly redacted that should like they were redacting the names of public employees, not just students. It was just a really difficult process. They wouldn't let us interview anyone. You know, we gave them, I think we said four dozen 
questions and they never answered any of those. Uh, so I do, things aren't getting better, right? Like it is definitely true that there's a different way we talk about this, but I'm not sure that that is necessarily changing the way people are acting around this. And that's something I say a lot that I think the system is set up to encourage people to make bad choices when you're talking about big money, big stages, all of that sort of stuff that until the system itself is somehow changed, which I don't know how that will happen, people are going to continue to make bad choices that often look like and are indifference to these kind of reports. And I think it goes to just, you know, societal changes versus individual personal changes, right? And like, when does one bleed into the next? And, you know, when you've been assaulted or harassed or, you know, made to feel threatened, when you're within this world that idolizes your abuser, that doesn't necessarily make it easier for you to come forward, right? Like you still have to go through all the steps to come forward, right? And maybe I think that's, it's like that in all cases, no matter kind of what type of trauma you're going through. And sometimes that gets lost when we say things like, you know, the post Me Too era. I think what that does is, first of all, it acts like a hashtag is like this some um, magical, you know, um, thing. But also I think it takes away all the different individuals who make all these different decisions that contribute to this environment and how hard that is to change and how the impetus for that to change, the responsibility for that to change is still on survivors. And I think something that I hoped was at the Me Too era I kind of hate saying that, but you all know what I mean. Like that that would make people in charge feel more like they needed to step up more. Right. And um, yeah, like they're scrutinized. Right. Like they, they're being scrutinized, that they needed to be more transparent. You know what I mean? That they needed to act more, that the responsibility for this would stop falling squarely on the victim's shoulders. And I don't feel like that shift has happened yet. Yeah. And again, I'll reiterate that a lot of people who came forward or were harmed, that we know were harmed, were other athletes. You know, we've talked about this a lot on the show, but athletics in college departments, especially when you are D1, major football program, they're so siloed, right? And so these people are coming forward in a, I wasn't, I feel like it was LSU where they got like a brand new locker room in the same week that their library flooded. And it was like, everyone's like, oh, it's clear, like what counts here? And the students are hyper aware of that too, right? Um, and so I do want to just reiterate that this is an LSU wide problem that they, uh, in general, don't handle Title IX. Well, there's issues with Title IX itself is kind of like part of what we found. But I definitely, yeah, the idea that people can just come forward and like that, that something has changed dramatically in a way that makes it easier to come forward is not true. It's still incredibly difficult. It's still very scary for a lot of these people, the people we talk to. They don't want their names. You know, they don't want their names in there. We had multiple women that we talked to and they're anonymous in the piece disclose publicly within days because they were so shocked that the support was so positive, which should tell you a lot about and they're right to be shocked, honestly. And I mean, we have to think that this starts at the high school level as well. Like you see the kind of cultural capital that football has in the South. They've already seen it play out in their high schools. So why would they think that the college is any different? And siloing has the effect of, you know, these athletes could have gone to professors. You could. You could go to feminist campus resources, which exist. But because they're also siloed as student athletes academically, their go-to person probably in their mind is going to be, you know, someone from the athletic department. Right. And they've been taught that these people will help them, right? And Jennifer Fried and other professors out of Oregon who've talked, and I probably mentioned this on the show, there's a phenomenon called institutional betrayal where when the institution you expect to protect you Mm -hmm. does not, you feel a certain kind of pain that's different but also important. And so, yeah, I can see telling your coach – the person that mm-hmm. you trust probably more than most and then watch them not care enough about you. I can't say enough about how shocking the violence of the Drake Davis cases. And he pleaded to this. So we can talk about it that way. Like it happened. And, and he said it did. It's just mind boggling that they sat around and watched this 
happen without intervening in a way to protect her. And I, I mean, it like hurts me, like it makes me emotional now. And I've known this story for a long time. One of the things I always think about is, and this came out in 2018, was there was an incident with the University of Maryland. And the, I mean, the headline here that I wrote for Think Progress, uh, I didn't do the initial reporting on this. This was the Washington Post. But it was a, a student accused two football players of sexual assault, and Maryland paid the legal fees of the accused and this is all within the athletic department because um the student was i don't know if she was an athlete but she was working for the athletic department or associated with the athletic department in some way and so this department that was supposed to be part hers too part of her home base was paying the legal fees for the the football players she was accusing of sexually assaulting her and I think this happens more than we know. Like this, that only came out because of an investigation into Jordan McNair's death. This came out as part of the investigation into Jordan McNair's death, Mm -hmm. which was totally Mm -hmm. unrelated to this, but it was looking at institutional failures. And I've always thought like things like this happen so much more. And, you know, reading in your story, Jess, and from conversations I've had with other female athletes, things like weight rooms, right, that are supposed to be all of the athletes are supposed to have access to these facilities like weight rooms and training staff and things like this. And when your abuser has, you know, is in there and has priority in these spaces, the lack of safety that you feel. And when that is just reinforced by those in charge, it's devastating. I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about ways in which we might rectify this or or ways to think about going forward. And, you know, as a person who's a university professor, who's a lifer, you know, in the university, I think it is a special place. If there's not going to be a reckoning with this at universities. There's not going to be a reckoning anywhere. These are public institutions. We pay into them. We think they're civically important. We think they're bedrocks of democracy. It's not enough to just say like, well, you know, fuck this shit. Like that's not going to, that's, that's not helpful in terms of thinking through. Universities are a good thing <laughs> in general, but here we see they're doing very, very bad things. And, you know, whether you're hiring a lawyer, whatever, these are the highest public paid employees in the estates. The average public employee in the state of Louisiana makes around $50,000. That is nothing compared to the power of these athletic departments. And those football coaches will make more than the governor, will make more than the president of the university. And can I just add, Brenda, that a lot of the time when you talk to these people who've been harmed one yeah they agree with you the university is like a really important space and their education is really important and that's so much of what they want is just to go to school without being scared and as someone that has handled as a professor quite a lot of title nine cases i'll tell you in the majority what the survivors want is to be able to go to school without running in to, to the people involved in their assault. That is, all, that is almost always what they want. Yes, the asks are often pretty small. And that's part, that's part of it too, is, is like, <laughs> just do the small thing. Yeah. Like they're, uh, yeah. Uh, it, uh. That, sometimes I'm shocked by how little they're asking for and how that can't even be met. And, you know, I have to say that This is coming at the same time that there's a denigration of faculty over the last years. There's a denigration of investigative journalism. And what we saw in the Nassar case, what we see in this case, and what you all did at USA Today, what we've seen is how important it is to pressure from without. And I think, you know, it scares me to see both those things happening. Over the last 10 years, since 2009, Louisiana State has cut 500 faculty positions. 500. So if we think that the argument that I'm about to make, which I've made a thousand times before, which is you need faculty governance if you're going to overhaul athletic departments. We saw it at Rutgers. We've seen it at other places. It's the only thing that really those tenured professors who have the protection can go after these administrators. But when you have fired 500 positions at a place like Louisiana State, that is an active way that you're sabotaging that kind of accountability. That is just obvious right there. So I guess I want to 
ask for other ideas or other solutions that you think. I mean, Title IX isn't perfect, but it's certainly really, really important. And it seems like from these stories, that's not what's wrong. Right. No. I mean, they had policies that had they followed, it would have been better. I'm not going to say that like it would have been good because we've seen all kinds of ways that the implementation of Title IX has been difficult and harmful to people at all kinds of universities all over the place. But certainly the policies were there. So I I mean, I think this is the hardest part, right? The how to fix part is the hardest because it really does feel like in the LSU case, and this is true in lots of places, but that there is some kind of cultural issue and like how you shift culture is so different. So you can put the policies in front of people all you want, but if they're not going to follow them, and part of why they don't follow them is because they don't have to. Like, you know, accountability is lost here. No one's paying attention. I mean, the media had to, we had to do the work that we did in order for this to happen. And I will say just credit to USA Today on this. I've never worked on a team like this before. There were the three reporters. There was actually a fourth reporter who was local who did additional reporting for us. And then throughout the process, there were always at least two, if not three editors on every editorial meeting. And at one point, there were four. It was just a huge team of people working very hard to get the story out. And I never experienced that before. Like I never worked on a team where like, an option was to sue for documents. And then they just did it. It was really something to see what can be done when you do have the kind of resources here. And you mentioned Nasser, which was also, you know, a USA Today paper that broke all of that wide open. And so, yeah, more money for more outside scrutiny, maybe. I don't. <laughs> but yeah, the how to. I don't know. Lindsay, do you have any ideas on this? People have to be held accountable, and I do not mean the abusers here. I mean, there has to be a system where the people in positions of power are held accountable for the actions of the people that they are supposed to be in charge of. And I know it gets messy, and I know that, you know, everyone wants to say there's nothing that you can do, and everyone wants to say, I don't know, and everyone wants to say this is just stuff that will happen, and... How could we be in charge of it? But we have to hold people accountable. I just keep thinking back to Nasser and to what we saw in the roundabout of trying to find accountability for the abuse he inflicted in case you all don't know, just very briefly, Larry Nasser was the former Michigan State doctor and USA Gymnastics doctor who, you know, sexually abused hundreds, probably thousands of people under the guise of medical treatment during his time at Michigan State and with USA Gymnastics. And you know, he had an office at Michigan State, and he treated a lot of athletes, not just gymnasts, but a lot of people throughout the athletic department. And there was the NCAA. Uh, first of all, I'll never forget, if you remember the big, when all the testimonies were coming out, so the victim impact statements for the Nassar survivors were being read in a courtroom in Michigan. And during that time, Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, was asked about this, right? And he said, I don't have enough information on the details of what transpired at the school right now. That was his statement. While, well, watch the victim impact statements. There's literally yeah. like the whole world is seeing information come mm -hmm. out. Um, we all had a lot of information at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was there was too much information, yes, honestly. Yeah. Like, yes. I was on information overload. Uh, yes. So then the NCAA does open up an investigation. And the Lansing State Journal reported that Michigan State itself sent a letter to the NCAA notifying them that Nassar, under the guise of medical treatment, sexually assaulted at least 25 Michigan State student-athletes. That's their phrasing. We know we hate that phrasing. Between uh, 1997 and 2016, including six since 2014, when Michigan State botched its initial Title IX investigation of Nassar's abuse. This is Michigan State saying this to the NCAA. However, Michigan State said in the letter that despite all of this, no violations of NCAA rules occurred with regard to the criminal conduct of Dr. Larry Nasser. And the NCAA ultimately agreed. Yes. Like the well, they're NCAA right. Said, they're right. Yep. Yeah, the NCAA doesn't. This think. is the thing. It's just like, it's just like, it's infuriating. Like we have to find a way for the people in charge to be held accountable for these yeah. rampant abuse or else they're never Never gonna care. I think that's what I realized. Like they're literally never ever going to care because 
being able to say, I don't know about this. Like, why are they afraid of giving the tiniest punishments to these athletes, right? Which is even just, because then they have to admit that they know about it, right? And they're afraid that if they admit that they know about it, then they're going to be held responsible for it on a bigger level. And it just, everything they do is to be able to say, I didn't know about this. I don't want to know about this. I am not responsible for this in any way. And that's what has to stop. Sorry. And I'll just say, uh, can I just add very quickly that like, one of the other things around Baylor that's happened this week in the in the conversation is people keep bringing up Art Bryles being fired, right? And I really just feel like he's the exception that proves the rule, that, like, you don't get fired. Yeah. And yeah. so we are always mentioning him because he's the one that exists out there. And one of the things about Baylor is that he's, to this day, Art Bryles says he doesn't know about any of this stuff and that he set up a system so that he would not know, right? Uh, that, right. like – and. Maybe that's true. I I honestly don't know. Either way, I know what people think. But even that, like he had, is saying, like, I didn't know because I didn't want to know. And I made sure that I would be safe from that. And what even to say about the NCAA? Yeah. Well, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely good with just getting rid of the NCAA. So yeah, I, yeah. I think we can say that that's a dead end, that we're real clear on the purpose of the NCAA, which was created by President Teddy Roosevelt which is enough said, okay? So, like, it was never intended to I do this. Some... just brought some Teddy Roosevelt slander. Yeah, yeah. Fuck <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt. Um, he's, like, one of my least favorite Roosevelts. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Like, <laughs> this, was, this was an organization designed to keep college football going even when people were just dying yes. on the field. Yes. So, so this isn't an organization that, that it's, it's just inherently problematic. And I just would like to say that if we have to give up on hearts and minds, if what Lynn's just said is true, right, that you keep wanting people to care and they just they just aren't, then I feel like you have to go after wallets and reputation. And the way that you do it, the way that you do it, hello, faculty out there. I'm sorry if you were picked last in gym class and you hate sports. You have to get involved because it's a student issue. And what you do is you press to get on these committees. And there are these committees. And if you get on them and if a full faculty meeting pressures the president to make these people accountable, they will have to be. They will. And I know it's a lot to ask of faculty as we're already being asked so much, but I just think that's one way to go. And I think all this investigative journalism helps give them the case in their lap to make. They don't even need to do that research because people like Jessica Luther has done it. So I just want to say congratulations and thank you to you and your collaborators for an amazing piece of work. I know it's hard, but I hope you get some satisfaction in that people are responding. Absolutely. We've heard from a lot of people who are very thankful that this story now exists and speaks to the experiences that they had and makes them feel seen. And that's always the thing that makes you do it again. So for this Thursday, our interview is really exciting. It's with Stefan Szymanski and Silka Maria Vinick on Detroit sports and their new book, City of Champions, A History of Triumph and Defeat in Detroit. In some sense, the the sports teams represent a, a measuring stick, a, a, you know, a level against which you can see the changes that are going on, even though it's changing, it's still the same city. Sports, I think, has a similar relationship to cultural life as Detroit has to America. In some ways, everything that happens in America also happens in sports and becomes very visible in sports, precisely because sports is the greatest cultural practice. Well, not the greatest necessarily in an evaluative sense, but in a sense of audience size. Sports is the most visible cultural collective practice globally. So as we all know, 2020 has already reshaped how we work, it's almost over, Uh, but businesses across the globe have been challenged to be their most efficient. And guess what, friends? Indeed is here to help. Indeed, what is Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site according to Comscore. It helps you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business 
going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need and you can pause at any time. This is my favorite. As someone who forgets to cancel things and is very ADHD, um, Amir, can you relate? Uh-huh. Do you, yes. Do you have, do you have yes. a few things on your account that just like, oops. Keep going. <laughs> oops. Yes. So there yes. are no long-term contracts. No long-term contracts. You um, don't have to end up with zone for a year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Shireen. And also hope zone is not a sponsor of us. <laughs> Uh, So instant match. Now, this is an exciting thing. Uh, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly is instant match. It delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria. And you can contact the moment you sponsor a job. Making Indeed. Okay, this is a, I like this line. Making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Woo! Here's our call to action right now. Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Shireen, what's the credit? I have no idea. It is a free $75 credit. Amira, what's the credit? It's a free $75 credit. Thank you. At Indeed. God, I was ready and you didn't call well, wait, me. I, Jessica, I thought Jessica okay. was okay, going to do it. At I'm ready. Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. This is their best available offer anywhere. Jess, what is that website? Uh-oh. Indeed.com slash blue wire. Indeed.com slash blue wire. I have it. Indeed.com. Go there right now before you forget it um, because we forget things. Uh, The offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Okay. We definitely just did an entire segment on data and sports and did not talk about betting. You might be wondering why. Wow. (laughs) It's because we don't know anything about betting. I don't know how many times I can keep telling y'all that. I have no idea. I keep telling you that. I keep telling my uncle that. Like, I don't know how many more ways we could say. I don't know. But again, if you are somebody who likes to bet and knows what to bet on and what all those numbers mean, I can say, I can pretend, I'll be like, take the over, take the under, I go against the spread, they're negative five, I'll take them and the points, I can pretend a lot. But the people you really want to turn to is bet online, because they give you every possible chance to win this season. They have game spreads and totals and teams and players and coaching props and prop bets are a thing that I'm going to say. Again, I don't know what that means, but Bet Online does. So go there. They give you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their um, bonuses, wager on wins, division championship features all day, every day. So please head on over to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, uh, where we take all the garbage in sports for the week and put it on a metaphorical burn pile. Linz, what you got? So last week, Jess burned the story of tennis player Alex Verov. Um, his ex-girlfriend, Ola Sharapova, has come forward about horrific domestic violence. Ben Rothenberg at Racket Magazine has reported extensively on this. You know, part of that burn was just also the tennis community's silence. Well, one tennis player decided to say something this week. It was the ATP Finals, the last event of the year. And Novak Djokovic, number one player in the world, after he had been in a press conference and after playing Zverev in the round robin portion, he was asked in a press conference about this abuse. So he knew about this abuse. Any hint that he didn't know about this abuse was taken away because he was asked about it in the press conference. Then Djokovic takes to Twitter to post a photo of himself hugging uh, Zverev. And the caption here is, always a pleasure sharing the court with you, Sasha. Great ending of the season for you. Best wishes in what awaits you on and off the court. 
stay strong. You are not going to tell me that that is not as close as you can get of saying, ignore all the bullshit allegations. You are fine. Fuck the haters. Like, that's what that basically said. Yes. Don't believe, hashtag, don't believe women, hashtag, not all men. Like, it basically, that's what that says. And I'm sorry if anyone is pretending. Like, you did not have to send this message. You did not have to mention best wishes off court. (laughs) You did not have to mention stay strong if you felt like just saying this. So this is just, it's infuriating that this is what the leader of the sport has done. It's infuriating the sport itself has been so silent. And I'm just, once again, I'm just disgusted by the enabling and the way that people will rally around people when they have been accused of horrific abuse as if they themselves are the victims and as if women coming forward is the problem burn burn jessica Six weeks ago, back during episode 175, when we talked about coaching, I said the following. The Athletic published a piece about Wichita State men's basketball head coach Greg Marshall. The school has launched an internal investigation because there are multiple cases with witnesses of Marshall physically assaulting people, including one case where he punched a player between the shoulders near his neck during practice. Like, you can't. What? And he's not fired. He's just under investigation. Marshall In all, Marshall was reported three separate times for physically assaulting people. This week, it was announced that instead of being held accountable, Marshall is resigning his position at Wichita State. Apparently, this was the course of action everyone decided on after a three-month investigation into Marshall's actions. Wichita State says it will not release the findings of that investigation, claiming they're confidential. The athletic director had the gall to claim in the press release announcing Marshall's resignation, quote, our student athletes are our primary concern. Neither he nor Marshall even hinted at the reports of physical and emotional abuse. Because he resigned, Marshall still gets money. As part of his contract settlement, he will get paid nearly $8 million over the next six years. According to the Wichita Eagle, Marshall, quote, will receive a $48,076 payment from WSU every two weeks starting on December 11th for the next six years for a total of 156 payments and $7.5 million. The remaining 250000 is being paid to Marshall in a lump sum. Back in June, the Kansas Board of Regents approved a plan to increase tuition by 2% at Wichita State because of financial difficulties during COVID. This came after leadership salary reductions, including voluntary temporary furloughs of deans and a temporary reduction in salaries for university and athletic coaching staff, and a freeze of hiring and discretionary spending, including travel and non-essential purchases. In doing all of this, the school hopes to increase tuition revenue by $1.7 million and save $2.6 million. I'm not great at math. I'm decent at it. I use a calculator most of the time. But just doing this math in my head... I know that all of these measures don't come close to adding up to what the school will be paying an abusive former coach to go away. The system is bad. The lack of accountability is bad. And I just want to burn all of it. Burn. 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 (laughs) Very slow, frustrated burn from my (laughs) co-host, Lindsay. Burn. I'm going to burn. I also know what Brenda's is coming. (laughs) I'm so excited for this. I'm burning... (laughs) Ohio representative Jim Jordan's stupid fucking Twitter account. If I could, I would delete that account even before I deleted President Donald Trump's account. It is so bad. And I'm not encouraging you to go to it. In fact, let me do it for you. And I am subject to this because my lovely friends on Twitter comment on him all the time. And an evergreen reminder that Jordan, who sits on the Judiciary Committee, has never been held accountable for the routine and persistent and devastating sexual assaults within the men's wrestling program at Ohio State, which we've covered time and time again. Here are some of the goodies from Representative Jordan. Quote, even Dr. Fauci knows you can't cancel Christmas. End of quote. Even even Dr. Fauci? Like, even as if that's, you know, he is like the last person that has any sense. Number two, quote, don't lock down the country, don't impose curfews, don't close schools, let Americans decide for themselves and celebrate Thanksgiving, end of quote. 
I think it's perfectly in order that Representative Jordan does want to celebrate genocide. And I also think it's perfectly normal that he is a COVID denier and that that seems in keeping with his politics. Here's another great one, quote, at least you can still tweet after 10 p.m. in Ohio, end of quote, which is part of his rebellion against what he considers the repressive curfew in Ohio. And that does make me sad that you can tweet Representative Jordan after 10 p.m. That makes me really sad. And then I'll just give you I'll just give you one more. I don't want to belabor it, but Quote, in Ohio, you can play music at a wedding, but you can't dance to it. You can play games at an arcade, but you better not socialize in a common area. You can order beer at 9.59 p.m., but not 10.01 p.m. Makes total sense. End of quote. Wow, that's a poet. And a sarcastic one at that. That's great that you think it's like time for your like super insightful sort of ideas about that. You also can't trade stocks after 4 p.m. Eastern time, but you can at 3.59 p.m. And you know what, Representative Jordan, it really makes total fucking sense. And so do the curfews and so do the school closures. And so I want to burn your Twitter account where you go on and on about how great Lou Dobbs is and just subject us to your petty, petty, petty bullshit poetry. So I want to burn it. Burn. 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 Aren't there always points in time like bars close at 2 I play like, yeah, just, okay. yeah. Of course, there's time that we we're a society that runs on time. In, in DC, like the metro closes at like midnight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's always a time when you can't order a beer. Like, <laughs> like, okay, whatever. But you know what? If you look at at Representative Jordan's Twitter timeline, you will see that he put on there freedom. So you know what? I just can't it comes argue back with to that. freedom. I bet mm-hmm. can't argue with I bet that. he has no problem with places not selling beer on Sundays though. Or like, you know, at a wrestling match when time's up, it's time's up. So I feel like Representative Jordan does understand the utility of using deadlines in time probably. But I don't know. Maybe not. I love you, Brian. <laughs> I love you too. After all of that burning, now we're going to celebrate some really wonderful people in our Torchbearers of the Week segment. I'm going to start off with my Hell Yes Ally of the Week, which goes to former Chilean national football star, soccer star, Jean Bossejour Colequeo. He has been named as a constituent assembly member for the gender equity-driven constitution making in Chile. Bosejur is Haitian, Mapuche, and a feminist advocate within football, and he's now going to be a part of creating this new and exciting chapter in Chilean democracy. So congratulations, Bosejur. The Firestone of the Week, Lindsay. Yes, Seattle Storm's Jewel Lloyd. Love her for her campaign to provide 10,000 meals to the hungry this holiday season. 10,000 Amazing. And the torchbearer of the week goes to, can I get a drum roll, please? The women and allies who agitated for reform and women's football labor standards, especially in the federations and in FIFPRO, who managed to get FIFA, I repeat, FIFA, to create minimum standards. Cheers all around. Yay. In these dark times. What is giving you happiness? What is good in your week? Lindsay. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This is a really, really uh, tough one. I will say, though, and I I slightly mentioned this off top, up top, but I really love makeup and I'm not great at doing it or anything, but I enjoy it. And so I've gotten back into like buying really cheap makeup and having fun with it just for myself. Like I don't really do it for anyone else. And it's fun. And I watch lots of TikTok makeup videos. Oh my gosh. I just scroll, scroll, scroll. They make things like winged eyeliner look so easy and it is, it is not. But anyways, I will just say like, in a very just like just for me way like I've been enjoying makeup and that's been part of my self-care cool cool in addition to the toaster strudel 
I am also reading two books. One is Graciela Montaldo's Museo del Consumo. And I understand that not everyone reads Spanish, but if you do, it's fantastic. And also Bill Ackery's new book, Staging Frontiers, The Making of Modern Popular Culture in Argentina and Uruguay. So when I'm avoiding grading, that's what I'm doing right now. And it feels like maybe still working. Uh, Jess? Yeah, so it was a long week. It was not an easy week, but uh, my birthday fell on Wednesday. And so I didn't work that day. I got to eat cake. I saw friends and family. I got a bunch of puzzles for my birthday. Had some good hamburgers. So that was a nice day. And then on what day? Friday, Amira and Mike and the family stopped by on their way to Houston. And we did a masked distance outside chat for about 30 minutes and that was lovely we had scooby and ralph together and they wouldn't really play they were kind of just in the same space both of them boy dogs peeing on everything but uh it was really fun to see them and then i just wanted to mention there is a netflix show called dash and lily it's kind of like a ya uh romance and we found it incredibly charming. And so it just made me very happy. It's very lovely and fun and easy to take in. So I recommend that. Lynn? Yeah, one quick thing uh, that is good is that my both sides of my family, mom's side and dad's side, both both canceled the big Thanksgiving get-togethers. And my families can be very stubborn about holiday gatherings. They mean a lot to us as they do, I know, to everyone. But I was very relieved that those were canceled this year. And I just kind of want to encourage everyone to put safety first this holiday season. This virus is getting really, really bad. I know in Greensboro, the COVID hospital is now full and, you know, patients are going elsewhere. My mom actually got a positive test this week in the nursing home. We think it is a false positive. She's asymptomatic so far, fingers crossed. But, you know, the fact that she's in a nursing home makes that like really scary. But I know it's so hard to not carry through with holiday traditions after such a rough year. But I just kind of wanted to say to everyone, I hope that we can all find ways to enjoy from a distance from outside and through Zoom and be safe because I think we're getting closer to the end of this. And I just I want everyone to be safe. I love you all so much. On Burn It All Down, we feel a lot of conflict about what to watch in sports this week. So it's a great segment. (laughs) But when I asked people, uh, you know, college football really wasn't top on their list. You know, there's some, I would say, high level of discomfort right now with encouraging some of the sports events. So I will say that I am still watching the UEFA Men's Champs League this week. It's today, Tuesday, and also tomorrow, Wednesday. And yeah, I don't know, guilty pleasures. What can I tell you? That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. On behalf of all of us here, especially more than ever, burn on and not out. This episode was produced by The Wizard, Martin Kessler, and Shelby Weldon Extraordinaire does our website and social media. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down basically anywhere where you get your podcasts. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. We're on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com, for previous episodes, transcripts, and links to the show notes. From there, you can email us directly or go to the Teespring store, and there are links to our Patreon. Once again, the biggest, biggest thank you of all to our patrons for your support. It means the world. Man, I